Church, I'm going to ask you to stand with me uh, for respect for God's word. We'll be looking at Psalm 1 again this week. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's have a seat. I'm so thankful for our Wednesday night worship team leading us each week. Yeah. I just love that we get to come in and just sing together and pray together. Last week we started a a three-week series here um, in Psalm 1. And we titled this, Live Different. Uh, And the question is, how do we live differently uh, as we go into 2024? Advent has now started. It's the start of the Christian New Year. So how are we going to live this year differently than we have other years uh, in the past? And and I said last week that there are things in our life that we want to change or we want to improve. And and I hope that you know what those things are. Uh, That's not just self-awareness, but uh, that's a part of it. But we don't want to live with deception or we don't want to live in denial. Uh, We want to be aware of what the Lord is doing in our life, how He's molding us and shaping us. And the truth is, is I really believe that you can live differently. I really believe that you can live differently. Those things that you see in your life that need to be formed into the image of Christ, I believe that that can happen. However, I also believe that that is not going to happen passively uh, or with us just being inactive. I think if we have to engage what the Lord is doing in our life as He is molding us and shaping us, and uh, we have to seek Him and how He's leading us. And so last week, uh, we were going to try to get through verses 1 and 2. We got through verse 1, and so, uh, which is fine, it's fine. I'm a little behind, but it's all right. Uh, I'll just, I mean, this, this sermon will only take me about an hour and 15 minutes, so we'll be good. Um, but I want to pick up where we left off. Last week, we looked at verse 1. It said, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but, but he lives differently. The blessed man, his life is one that delights in the law of the Torah, the instructions of the Lord. And on his law, his instructions, he meditates day and night. And so I left off last week where we ended was with this this idea that there is another way to live. Sure, we can choose to walk, because remember both covenants offer two ways to live. We saw that in Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 18. Also, Matthew 7. We're going to be going back to Matthew 7 tonight. You can, we, can, we can walk that way of the wicked, or we can go about life another way. 
And so I want to focus in there on this delighting in the law of the Lord and on that law, meditating day and night is where I want to start. And with this other way to live, I want to to make four observations from verse 2 here for us. Four things, if you want to write them down. The first one is this, is that if we're going to live differently, people who live differently have a holy delight in God's instructions. There is a holy delight in God's instructions. And when I say the word delight, I mean there's an effectual dwelling in God's instructions, how He tells us how to go about life, what flourishing looks like, what prospering looks like, what being blessed actually looks like. And one of the things we have to understand is that what we delight in is going to be the thing or the person that instructs us. What we delight in is going to be what instructs us or informs us. Because whatever we delight in, that thing that is informing us and instructing us, it's going to inform us and instruct us because we spend time with it or we spend time with them. It's very important. And this is where the psalm is going here. So if we're going to live differently in 2024, there has to be this growing delighting in God's instructions in our own life. Because so many times we say things, and, and we, we use language very, um, I don't know, uh, loosely sometimes. We say things like, oh yes, I love God. Oh yeah, I love God. I do. I do. Well, the question about do we love God, a lot of times we'll say, yeah, I love God, but reality is we don't spend any time with God. We'll say, I love God, but there's no divine activity going on in our life. There's no prayer. There's no worship. There's no Bible. There's no serving. There's no witnessing. And all of those things are obedience unto, right? So there's no obedience to prayer. There's no obedience in worship. There's no obedience in reading the scriptures. There's no obedience in serving. There's no obedience in witnessing. So we'll say, yes, I love God, but then we, we don't live it in any way or we don't spend time with him in any way. And so whenever we say, yes, I love God, but we don't spend any time with him, what that means is what we said when we said, I love God is actually a lie. It's actually a lie. Because if we're going to live differently, this different kind of Psalm 1 life, there is a holy delight in God's instructions. And it means that we spend time with them. We spend time with the words that God has already spoken to us. And, and whenever I say that, you know, we can say, say, I love God, but if we don't do anything or we do it very sparingly or at our, our convenience, we're actually lying. That, that's not me making that up. Jesus said, John 14, 21, he who has my commands, means you know them, and keeps them, means you do them, them is the one who loves me. That's the one who loves me. The one who knows my commands, they have them, and the one who does them, the one who keeps them, that's who really loves me. John would pick up on that in 1 John 5, 5, and he would say, this is real love for God, that you obey his commands. So many times we want to separate out this idea of love and this idea of obedience to the Lord. Whether it's obedience in prayer, obedience in scripture, obedience in worship, obedience in being a part of a fellowship. Like we want to separate those two things out, but they are not separated. 
Because it is in living this way in which we are following the Lord, actively pursuing Him, involved in divine activity in our life, divine being these means of grace in which God has given us. When we're involved in that, that actually proves that there is a love that is motivating that and behind that. So if we're going to live differently in 2024, it starts with this holy delight in God's instructions, which is going to lead us to what the verse tells us in the second part of it. There has to be intentional meditation. Intentional meditation. There's a holy delight in His instructions, but there's an intentional meditation on our part. Intentional meditation. Now, whenever I say the word meditation, I'm not talking about the Eastern idea of meditation. The Eastern idea of meditation is more of an emptying of yourself. That is not what Hagah, which is the Hebrew word there, means. Hagah is very different. It's not an emptying of yourself. It is actually a filling of yourself. Hagah means to fill yourself with God's instructions, with Scripture. It is a filling of yourself, filling of your mind with Scriptures. It, it can also mean this slowly reciting Slowly reciting, taking your time, musing your way through Scripture, slowly reciting Scripture. The whole point is that you're saturating your mind. You're saturating your heart. You're saturating your life in what God has already spoken. So many times in life we say things, well, I need God's direction. I need God to tell me what to do. I need God to help me with this. I need God to help me with that. Listen, God has already said a lot. We need to start there. And so to live differently, to live a different kind of life than those around you, not that we're comparing, but to live differently from who you have been in the past, it takes a slowing down enough to Hagah, to take time to meditate on God's law, and then we get this interesting day and night thing. I'll get to that in just a moment. Psalm 119, if you want to turn there. You don't have to. Psalm 119, verse 18. We see this kind of prayer that's helpful for this if we're going to meditate or Hagah, God's law. It says, open my eyes, the psalmist prays, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. That's the heart behind this type of meditation. Again, it's not an emptying of yourself. It's not trying to find some inner peace within yourself. That's, that's very popular today. That's not it. That's not it. It is soaking in what God has already spoken. Because what is in you when times get tough is what's going to come out, right? Jesus didn't have time to go run and try to find a Bible verse from the Psalms or Deuteronomy for that matter when he was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, right? So we're constantly praying, open my eyes, Lord, open my eyes that I may see this wondrous things in your law. So to live differently, we have, there's a holy delight in God's instructions. There's intentional meditation. But number three is this. This is more of an observation. We need to understand that meditation, this kind of meditation, meditation fuels our delight. This is really important, I think, for us to understand. Meditation is the discipline. The delight deals with our affections. So many times in our culture, we just say, if I don't feel it, I won't do it. In Scripture, it's the other way around. We do so that we may feel. You with me there? Very important. And you hear me say this all the time in so many different ways. Our world runs off of feelings. It runs off of feelings. 
But the type of delighting that's here is something that hits our affections in a much deeper way. But it's the discipline, though, of meditation that will then fuel, it fuels our delight. And it keeps it going. And this is so important. All the Christians that we read about throughout history, uh, the people who we consider the heroes of the faith, whether they're in scripture or church history, that many times these people, it, we, we say, what, what made them so special? How did they do this in some way? Really, what it really boils, boils down to is they learned how to um, sharpen, if you will, or shape their desires, sharpen their discipline so that they can shape their desires, not be led by them. People who don't do great things for God or do anything for God for that matter are people who are constantly being led around and they're just being tugged around by their own feelings versus bringing those feelings under the power of the Holy Spirit in our life and letting them be shaped and molded by what the Lord is saying to us. The meditation fuels the delight Meditation fuels the delight. And we say, well, what if, what if, you know, people say this to me all the time, what, what, what do I do when I don't feel it? Well, what do I do then? Well, you keep meditating. You keep a healthy intake of scripture into your life. So many times people will get to that place where they feel like life is falling apart. And instead of pressing in, they just give up. But it's when life gets hard, that's when we press in all the more. That's when we meditate all the more. That's when we haggah all the more to fill up because that was what will fuel our affections. Also, we ask. We ask the Lord to move. We ask the Lord to do something deep within us. Um, it was Thomas Akempis, a hero of mine. And if you don't know who Thomas Akempis is, please just go home tonight and Google him or you can do it right now while you tune me out. Um, but... Thomas Akempis wrote The Imitation of Christ, and he talks about this idea of our affections and our desires in one of these short little writings that he did. Listen to this. He said, oh, how great is your goodness, O Lord, which you have laid up for those who fear you. When I think about some devout persons who approach your sacrament, O Lord, with the great devotion and affection. I feel confounded and ashamed within myself that I come with such lukewarmness, yes, coldness to your altar in the table of sacred communion. I am sad that I remain so dry and without strong affection toward you, that I am not wholly inflamed in your presence, oh my God, nor so earnestly drawn and affected as many devout persons have been who out of a fervent desire for holy communion and heartfelt love could not restrain themselves from tears, but with the mouth of their hearts and bodies alike panted after you from their inmost souls. O oh God, the fountain of life, not being otherwise able to satisfy their own hunger except by receiving you with all delight and spiritual eagerness. Oh, he says, they know the Lord in the breaking of the bread. Their hearts vehemently burn within them while you, O oh blessed Jesus, walk with them. Such affection and devotion, such strong and fervent love is often far from me, he says. Be favorable to me, O oh merciful Jesus, sweet and gracious Lord. Grant that this poor needy creature sometimes at least feel in holy communion a little of your warm affectionate love so that my faith may grow stronger, my hope in your goodness increase, and that 
love for you, once perfectly inflamed within me after tasting the heavenly manna, may never cease. I read that to you to say this is one of the greatest men in church history. Pouring out his heart in this moment saying, I don't feel it. I don't feel it. But notice what he's doing. Notice that in the I don't feel it, he's pursuing the Lord. And you may not have caught this, but this is a meditation on Scripture from him. He quotes Psalm 31, 19, Psalm 42, 1 through 3, and Luke 24, 23 through 35 and what I just read to you. I just didn't pause and say book, chapter, verse. And so when Thomas Akempis comes to this place where he doesn't feel it, he doesn't back off. This is a prayer of pressing in, a prayer of meditation, true meditation on God's Word, saying, Lord, I need more. And the input are those three scriptures that I just referenced. Amazing. There, if we're going to live differently, there has to be a holy delight in God's instructions. There has to be, therefore, this intentional meditation because it is the meditation that fuels the delight every time, every time. The fourth thing I would say about verse 2 then is this. The fourth thing is simply we have to make sure we do not let, and I'll put it this way to use this image, we, we do not let the fire go out. David in Psalm 1 says, but his delight, the blessed man's delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his instructions, his law, he meditates day and night. As soon as we read that, we go, well, I can't do that. I got to sleep sometime, right? Day and night. I think what David is getting at is something we see earlier in, in Scripture. And I think what he's getting at is a principle found in Leviticus 6.13. Leviticus 6.13. In Leviticus 6.13, God is giving instructions about worship, particularly here, burnt offerings. In Leviticus 6.13, God says, fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. He says, it shall not go out. Which meant when this temple is in place and functioning, the Old Testament temple, the way it is supposed to, there is fire on the altar continually. And a part of the priest's job was to make sure that that fire does not go out because it represented so much more than just some wood burning. They didn't want to just get the fire started when there was someone standing there to sacrifice. The altar was to burn continually. This verse has literally transformed church history, if you know a little bit about that. The Moravian revival that happened from 1727 to 1739. The Moravians were a religious refugee group. Uh, they went into Germany and they found asylum really uh, at the estate of Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf in Saxony. Now, as the group made their way there, uh, they got there and the first thing they did, since they're really good religious people, is they started fighting. 
Um, they fought about everything, you know? I mean, just like good church folks. They, I, matter of fact, I think they were Methodist. I don't know. But they just started fighting, you know, about this, about that, about doctrine about this and doctrine about that. How should you do this? How should you do that? And it was just crazy. I mean, just all this fighting. So on August 13th, 1727, this was three days after God's presence was felt in a prayer meeting, meaning they were just together praying and people sensed God's presence. You ever sensed God's presence? It says three days after that prayer meeting, they come together and they have a communion service. Just do communion service. Guess what we're doing tonight? Communion service. And at that communion service, a revival begins. And in that moment, they are transformed in that communion service from all this fighting that they were doing and all this fussing that they were doing and all this complaining that they were doing. And what started in that service was what they called prayer watches. Their whole motto became, no one works unless someone prays. Whole motto. Here's the thing. When that prayer meeting started, in that communion service, it did not stop for 100 years. Continual prayer night and day for 100 years. Sent missionaries all over the world. People would say, I feel the Lord leading me to this particular place. I'm going. They would kiss their families goodbye because most time they never saw them again. And they went in obedience to the Lord. Think about that, a 100-year prayer meeting. I mean, we get upset if we, you know, get the fried chicken cold on Sunday afternoon, right? A 100-year prayer meeting, which meant there were people who were born and then died, and all they knew of their people was that my people pray nonstop 24-7. Think about that. Could you imagine growing up in a culture where you knew your family was a part of a group of people, a town, and, we, and there was continual night and day prayer. That's all you ever knew. Amazing. Started one of the first missionary movements out of that all over the world. I tell you all that to say, it was Luke, I mean uh, Leviticus 6.13 that fueled that movement. When they read that verse, they realized we can't let the fire go out. And the New Testament fire is prayer in the presence of the Lord. I think they lived differently, don't you? So for us, if we're gonna live differently, we, we have to have, understand these four things. It takes a holy delight in God's instructions. There has to be then intentional meditation because meditation is what fuels the delight the discipline is what fuels the affections. We do the thing and our heart will catch up. We act out of obedience and our heart then will catch up. And then our job is to not let the fire go out. Countless people, countless people want to blame God or blame the church or blame somebody or something or their past or something. Want to blame them for their own fire going out. And I'm here to tell you, you can't do that. You don't get to do that. You are you. 
and all of who you are with all of your experience that make up the totality of who you are, all of that, you still get to make a choice. And while we've all gone through things and we all have scars and all of that stuff, and and, and while, yes, there are factors that happen around us that are beyond our control, when it comes to our fire, burning or not burning, that is your responsibility. It's no one else's responsibility. It's not the preacher's responsibility, and I am he. It's not the worship leader's responsibility, and they are them. It's nobody else's responsibility. You keeping the fire burning inside of you is your responsibility. And we have to come to that place, if we're going to live differently, we have to come to that place where we stop making the excuses and stop using whatever it is that's happened or whatever it is that's around us as a crutch. We have to take responsibility for the altar of our own heart and we have to kindle the fire. So many times people will say things like, you know, in church, throughout the years, I've been doing this a little while, and they'll, you know, well, I'm leaving. Okay, good for you. No one said that to me recently, by the way, but, but I'm leaving. Oh, okay, yeah, I just, I just don't feel it anymore. And in my mind, I'm always, oh, you let the fire go out. You let the fire go out. No one did that for you. But again, this is our culture. We feel, 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 feel. And then we act on the feeling. No, no, no. The question we have to ask ourselves is, how are we keeping the fire going? It's our responsibility. It is your responsibility. No one can do that for you. No one gets to do that for you. No one can carry that responsibility for you. That's between you and the Lord. The fire on the altar of your heart continuing to move. I got a choice to make right here, and it's how far do I go. So here's what I'm going to, let's go to the next verse. So then he gives an image in verse 3. Here's the image. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. One of the things we have to understand is that human history is moving toward a stream and toward a tree. Human history is moving toward a stream and toward a tree. We see it in the very last book, in the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Verse 14 in Revelation 22 says, blessed are those who wash their robes. Some of the manuscripts say, do his commands. Blessed are those who wash their robes or do his commands so that they may have the right to the tree of life. So human history here, it's no accident that David is using this image here in Psalm 1. Human history is moving toward a tree and toward a stream of water. So the question is, what about now? What do I do now? And the way I would answer that is to say this, is that the divine pursuit of a Christ follower is to be planted in Christ in the present. 
That is our pursuit now. We're moving toward a tree and a stream. Our responsibility now is to make sure we are planted in Christ in the present because Christianity is a now religion. You do know that, right? So many times we make it into a then religion. One day when I get to heaven, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there, right? What about today? See, Christianity is a now religion. We're not in pursuit of nirvana. We're not trying to keep the Old Testament law so that we can be found worthy, right? We're not following Kishnu, the Hindu god. We're not doing any of that so that we may be found worthy. No, no, no. It is a now religion. We're to be planted and rooted in Christ now, rooted in Christ in real space and in real time. Uh, This is what uh, Colossians says. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, meaning you're a Christian, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught. Same thing, Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. You can read that. What, one thing I want to say is that this is not optional. This is like being, you're either planted, you're either rooted in God or you're not rooted in God. You're either a tree planted by a stream of water or you're not right? You don't read John 15 and Jesus like, well, I may be the vine. My God, you know, the Father may be the vine dresser. You may be. No, there is no maybe. You either are or you're not. It's pretty clear, right? You understand how that works. And so when it comes to this idea of being rooted and planted, this image given in Psalm 1, it is, it is, it really is, you are, or you're not. You are, or you're not. You say, well, how do I know? Well, thank you for asking. It goes back to the very first word of the psalm. Blessed. Blessedness brings this fruit. That's how Psalm 1 talks about it, right? Bearing its fruit in its season. Also, think about what Jesus says in Matthew 7. He says, beware of false prophets who come out or come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Fake fruit always is known. Always. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. And then he goes on. You will recognize them by their fruits. When it comes to this idea of being planted now and rooted now, we always, how do I want to know? The question, do you have this kind of fruit that Psalm 1 and Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7? And you may say, Chris, what is the fruit? I'm so glad you asked. If you just go right down to the next verse there in Matthew 7, after he talks about the tree and its fruits, Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who knows the will of my Father, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, which is the goal of Psalm 1. You got to remember the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus here in Matthew 7, how does it start? Blessed. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is given an exposition of Psalm 1. And there are several other ways that I want to show you that 
uh, as we close next week, maybe. But I want to end with this because it's going to lead us into communion. Whenever we talk about fruit, everybody wants to know who gets to examine the fruit. Who gets to examine your health? And I would say there are three throughout Scripture. There are three. Three get to examine you. First is God and His holiness. And I would reference Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Search me and know me. Two is you in honesty. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves, the next two words say. Examine yourselves, test yourselves. Third is others, and they are there to help. I would reference Hebrews 3.13. Please read that. But God in His holiness, you in honesty, and others who are there, God placed to help you, that is who examines you. I'll talk more about that next week. But I want to leave us with the question as we go into communion, and that question is, are you holistically planted in Christ? Last week I told you that walking with God is holistic. It is spiritual, emotional, physical, mental, relational, and even how we relate with the material world. So are you fully planted in Him? If you don't mind, bow your head. We want to pray about that as Kelly gets ready to lead us in communion. Father, we, we come in this moment asking a serious question as we uh, approach a, a serious means of grace. And that is, are we truly planted? Are we planted holy in you. Lord, anything we need to correct, course correct through repentance, everything, anything that we need to lay at your feet, Lord, would you help us do that in this moment so that we may in a worthy manner receive the body and blood of Christ once again. Let's take a moment to pray. And then we'll move forward.